So as we start out here, I'd like to just learn um, quickly from you. I would like to hear from you all three things that that you learned or that we talked about with regard to Christ. Three things about Jesus. And I would say things that, that, that we learned yesterday, but maybe they're things that you already knew, so I, I don't want you to get hung up on that technicality. Three things that we talked about yesterday with regard to Christ. He's our sufficiency. Okay. Was that in the first session or the second or third session. I'm, I'm thinking specifically about in that first hour. Since he created me, he owns me. Okay, he's owner. He is. He is owner. Okay, anything else? He is God. Good. Glad somebody caught something. Right? He is the revealer. Good. God reveals. He is revealer. All right. I'm sure there's a lot more. But I was just testing to see how well I did yesterday in communicating. <clears throat> Thank you. What we were trying to do yesterday... Not yet. I'll, I'll grab it if I get. Yeah, thanks. Um, what we're trying to do yesterday was to see Jesus and just to kind of try to catch a peek at Jesus, highly exalted, without beginning, having all the attributes of God, and who has created all things visible and invisible. That was that was kind of what we were trying to do yesterday. Today. We're going to look at Jesus as Savior. And by the end of this lesson, we want you to see, here's where we're trying to go with this lesson. We want to see that the incarnation is absolutely necessary to our salvation. The incarnation is absolutely necessary to our salvation. And there's a theological term that I'm going to try to use less of these, but some of you might enjoy it, so I'm just going to throw them up here. It's called the hypostatic union. That's the technical stuff. If, you, if you're interested in like the deep dives, you can check this out. The incarnation or the hypostatic union is essential to soteriology. The second objective is to see that as in Adam all die, so all in Christ are made alive. As in Adam all die, so all in Christ are made alive. Those, those, that's our, our goals for this session here. So there are five faithful sayings that Paul has to, in his pastoral letters. Five faithful sayings. And the first one is, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This is a faithful saying. Worthy of all acceptance. The second one says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And that's fascinating. That last clause is fascinating. Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Now you're going to think I'm talking about final restoration. So a couple questions just to kind of keep, to, to 
to engage you a little bit. Did the Savior have to be divine? And I sort of already gave that away, but did he have to be divine? Yes. Some people are nodding their heads. And, and, and that's great. That's awesome. That's, that's what we want to explore today. Did he have to be divine? Could a really good human have done it? Why? Where's that thing at? I don't see that little device. Here it is. Is this it? You said no. Because if we are fallible, then how could a fallible man save fallible men? Okay, good. Good answer. That's awesome. I heard somebody over here. He the same answer. It was different, though. I forget exactly how I said okay. it. You said because he was, because as an atom I'll die, or something like that. So, so because of that original sin of Adam, it couldn't have been a, a, a good human couldn't have done it. Even a, a human that could have kept the law still had the, the fallen, the brokenness. So the next question is, did the Savior have to be human? Did the Savior have to be human? Why? You're not in your heads, but I'm not sure. You're, you're kind of... It says somewhere they had to partake in flesh and blood or something. Oh, good. Yeah. Do you know why he had to partake in flesh and blood? We're going to look at that. That's what we're going to look at, exactly that. So, um, how many of you have ever heard of the Proto-Evangelium? Is that a new term to you? Awesome. <laughs> I mean, it would have been fine if somebody knew it, but... So the Proto-Evangelium is simply this. It's the first time we see the Gospel presented. First Gospel. And that is found in where? Do you want to guess? Where at? Genesis 1? Okay, that. Genesis 1 27, we're talking about God created. So, the, the first gospel presentation, you're close, you're really close, is Genesis 3 15. Does anybody know what that says? It's like right there. We're using this. Then an offspring will come to crush the serpent's head. Yeah, yeah. Somebody else want to complete that out for us? Right here. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Okay. Good. So that's the first time the gospel was preached. And it's called that word there. Um, why does that matter? It takes us back to the original problem. It takes us back and it helps us understand what the original problem was. And it, it, it predicts or it, it defines how the solution or how it's going to be resolved. There's very precise language in Genesis 3.15. A seed of the woman. It had to be, he had to be human shall crush the serpent's head. Had to be able to conquer the serpent. Precise language gives us clues as to how the dilemma or the problem is going to be resolved because the Savior, the fact that we're talking about a Savior, it, it, it implies something. When we say Jesus is the Savior, what does that imply? There's something that needs salvaged. There's something that it needs salvaged, and Jesus Christ has come to do that. Just as there's a tendency, we talked about yesterday how, how it's easy to have this kind of 
low view of Christ. Like, well, of course he came to die for my sins. I mean, he had to, didn't he? Like, he was obligated or, or just this kind of, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. And, and that's so great. But we, we just don't really get it. Like, it just doesn't really get a hold of us because we don't see him, who, is, who this is that, that died for our sins. So, just as there is a tendency to have a low view of Christ and therefore of his sacrifice, so there is also a tendency to have a limited view of salvation in all that it entails. Without a proper understanding of who Christ is, the nature of man's condition, we are left with a truncated idea of what all Jesus actually accomplished for us. It's much deeper than simply not going to hell. So as we start to dive into this question of Jesus is Savior, one of the things that, that Jesus is as our Savior, well, here's another, another verse that says, There is one God, and one mediator between God and man, between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So I want to just talk a little bit about the mediator. We need to understand what, what man's condition. Can you see this from where you're sitting over there? Okay, good. So, so tell me a little bit about the parties. We're gonna, we, we need to understand the parties involved in this transaction so that we can understand what um, what the dilemma is and how it required Jesus Christ to be all that he is in order to solve the problem. So let's talk about God a little bit. Just tell me some characteristics about God. Okay, God is holy. What else? Good. God is good. All, almighty you can throw them out there. I'll just try to write. Eternal. God is love. He is truth. Just. Sovereign. Can you? Outside restraint. Okay. Outside restraint. What did you say? Spirit. God is spirit. Okay, we got the omnis. What else? <laughs> Anything else that you want to say about God and just describing Him? Righteous. Okay, righteous. Righteous, yes. He is merciful. Uh, what did God tell Moses when Moses said, Let me see your glory? He said, I'm going to make all my glory pass in front of you. And I will declare the name of the Lord. Do you remember what he said there in that? Where is that found? All right. <clears throat> Here, pass this back to Sean, please. We're trying to understand the parties involved. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Thank you. So when God wanted us to know who he is and, and what he's like, this is God's description of himself. This is God saying, here's who I am. That was 34.6? Yes. Okay, everybody know where 34.6 is? Exodus. Okay, thank you. Exodus 34.6. Perfect, thank you. So let's talk about the other side of the equation. Tell me some things about man. Sinful. Okay. All right. What else? Prideful. 
Good. Without understanding. That's pretty good. We could probably add a lot more up there, but we're getting a lot of synonyms. There's also some things about God or about man that that I didn't hear, and, and we're, we've got to kind of manage our time here. We talked about them being image bearers. And they, we still are. We are still image bearers. We're just broken. Image bearers who are sons and thus represent God. This is, this is who man is. But man is also covenanted. Man is in covenant. By, by virtue of God creating Adam and blessing him and saying and commissioning him, there was a covenant there. And it doesn't use covenant language the same as it does later in the other covenants. But, but all the other features are there so, so we can superimpose some of those, the, those ideas on that conversation that God had with Adam when he said, be fruitful and multiply and all those things that have to do with image. Maybe I do want this. This is who man is. Man is image, and he is in covenant to do these things. He's committed to do these things and to do them well. But he is compromised, and those are a lot of the things that we've talked about, was that, what, that it's compromised. Man is compromised by sin and corruption. So I want, to, I want us to see that, that man is image, and man is Covenanted, I don't know if that's even, if that even works. Covenanted, but we need it. So, and God, who can tell me quickly what the, word, the name Jehovah means? Jehovah. If I'm not mistaken, and you can check me on this, it means the covenant-keeping God, the God who keeps His covenants. So God is, is very, how can we say that? When He makes a promise, He will do it. He, 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 he promises, and it is so His nature to keep His covenants that He can't not do that. So part of this, a big part of this problem, it really is over here. That God is love, He's holy, He keeps His covenants. He, can, he has to do something about this. He has to. And I, and I think that, that theologically we can say that. That God within Himself... Is, is obligated to resolve this problem. And I, hopefully that doesn't sound sacrilegious, but, but we have this dilemma that here is God, and God is love and relational, and He's forgiving, and he, at the same time He's holy and He's righteous and He's just. How can God be both just and Himself the justifier of the ungodly? That is the dilemma that we find in Romans 3. How can this work? How can God do this? Must God abandon His plan from Genesis 1? What was His plan in Genesis 1 when God created Adam and Eve? Um, relationship. It was about a people. And because we didn't like teach this, whenever we do the, the three-week Bible school, We'll be able to build these things up kind of little by little and, and it'll all fit together better. But, but we're just kind of having to jump in here in the middle. God had a plan when He created Adam and Eve. 
And that plan was a people living in fellowship with himself, in community with one another, and stewarding the earth for the glory of God and the good of humanity. And that will be on the test. These are the major questions. How can God be just and the justifier of the ungodly? Must God abandon his plan that he had in Genesis 1? Does he have to just trash it? Those are the questions that drive the Bible's entire redemptive storyline. How is God going to do this? How is God going to resolve this problem? Is he going to trash his plan? Will his plan come to beautiful fruition? So why is all this important to understanding Christ? This building block, the, the, this thing of him being the mediator, gives the rationale for why the divine son must become incarnate for us and why he must be greater. To undo, and, I, and now I'm quoting uh, Mr. Wellam, to, do, to undo and pay for Adam's sin, a seed of the woman that we talked about must come. In other words, for redemption to occur, a human must do it, yet the reversal of Adam's sin and all its disastrous effects will require more than a mere man. Why? Because we need a mediator, someone who is one of us, but can also restore our position and access to a holy God. One of us, but someone who can restore our access, our position and our access to a holy God. As God, He's able to satisfy His own righteous demands against us, and as a human, He is able to satisfy the demands of the covenant life for us as our new covenant head. So we're thinking about the fact that we need a representative substitute. Jesus is a Savior, and in that we see that we need a representative, and we need a substitute. Not, that is not a, one is not a qualifier for the other. It's two different parts of his role. And we're going to this is really important for a lot of what we're developing here about Christ. And I didn't say this yesterday, but, but as we think about Christ and who He is, in general, it's all kind of grouped down into three main categories. That Christ is prophet and priest and king. And right now we're focusing on His role as a priest. As the Savior, we're looking more at his role as the priest, and, and maybe some of the others can fit under prophet and king. But now we're thinking specifically of him as a priest, and as a mediator, and as a representative, and as a substitute. So hopefully this is making some sense to you why Jesus had to be a man, because he had to be able to represent us. So we're going we're gonna to jump right in um, to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Let's just do that now. Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to think about this thing of, of Jesus being this representative and being this substitute for us as our Savior. This salvation... That, we're, that we need, this redemption that we need involves three things that, that, we're gonna, that we're going to see right here in this text. It involves identification, representation, and satisfaction. So first of all, I'd like somebody to help me define the term redemption. What is implied by, the, by, by definition in the term redemption? Put that thing. To save that what was lost. Okay. To save what was lost. Anybody else have a? Buy back. 
to buy back. Does everybody agree with that? Anybody want to add to or, or help out with that definition? To buy back. Who said that? Thank you. Buy back. Anything, anything else that, that is included or involved in the idea of redemption? But you agree with her? Okay. We got somebody back here. I have an example, but it's, it's a little bit longer than just one word. So, to redeem something, it's like when you take uh, an item of yours and you take it to the pawn shop and you get money for it, and then later on you come back and you pay for it again. Or it's like a slave who is being sold into slavery, and then he finally saves up enough money to redeem himself, yeah. buy himself yeah. out of slavery. Excellent example. Thank you. I was, I was going to ask if there was any examples, and that's a, that's a perfect, perfect example. I don't know how many of you go to the pawn shop when you need money. You take your item there, and they give you money for that. And then if you save up enough to buy that thing back, then you can redeem that. I don't use it much. <laughs> but it is, that is the idea of redeeming, to redeem, redemption. Redemption. So that's very important. We don't have, we don't have time to, to plumb into that. Let's look at this text here. I would like to read it together, but um, I want to make sure that the reading gets done really, really well. So who thinks they can help us with that? All right, perfect. Thank you. Stand up and, and read that with precision and clarity. Hebrews so 2. Uh, yeah, Hebrews 2, but we're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to read down to the end. Just that's, that's where we're going. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham." Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to, meet, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Thank you. You can just leave that right there. All right, so this text here is, is just packed with a lot of things that teach us about Jesus as our Savior. And we're just going to be able to get a few of them. But we're thinking about His identification and the importance of Him identifying with us as a mediator. So He can identify with God because He is God, but He came and He was, He took on Him. He, he first thing He did was He made Himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He identified with us. So I want you to see if you can pick out some phrases in here that, that show us this concept. His identification with us. Can you see any phrases that just jump out at you that say, Jesus identifies with me? He calls us brethren. He calls us brethren. Oh, perfect. 
Okay. Calls us brethren. Brethren. Um, seed of Abraham. Hold on, I got got one over here. What was it? Okay, he's he's tempted like us. I sorry, I missed. Then I missed. Okay, partaker. And then suffer, suffered with us. Where do you get that? Where do you see that? What phrase? What verse? Verse 18. What's it say? Okay, so he identified with us in, in just suffering. There's another place where it says, yeah, I was thinking, what does it say in verse 14? Okay. Mm -hmm. I was actually looking up further up, verse 10 and 9. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the purpose of the suffering of death. Listen to this. By the grace of God, he tasted, the, he tasted death for every man. How often do you say that by the grace of God, um, I got sick, or by the grace of God, I... It's never negative. It's ne we never say, by the grace of God, and then follow it with a negative statement. But in this case, that grace costs something. By the grace of God, He tasted death for every man. He identified with us in that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. And, and that was such a big deal to, her, to the writer here that he quotes and requotes and quotes again. That was a big deal. The fact that God, and, and, and by the time we've gotten this far in this letter, we know that Jesus Christ is God. We have no doubt about that. This is God, and he didn't have any problem to call us brother and sister. That's my sister. That's profound. That's amazing. He, there, there's another phrase that I really would like you to, to see, and you did well. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm only just trying to. In verse 17, there is a phrase. It says, therefore, in all things, and then what does it say? He what? It behooved him. It behooved him. That's what it says? Where's that microphone at? Okay. What does it say? Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Let's talk about behooved a little bit. That's, that's, that, I'm sorry. If that doesn't make it into vernacular, it won't be my fault. <laughs> but behooved, what is behooved? Talk, talk to me about this. It behooved him. It pleased him. Okay. Anybody else? Something you must do. Why do you say that? Something you must do. It behooved him. That's just what the word means. It's not your fault. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's closer to than it pleased him. In that it, it had to be. It behooved him. He had to be made like his brothers. Therefore in all things, and we could say, therefore in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. He had to be. And that's what the Bible story is about. That he had to be make, made like his brethren. So we're talking about this. Identification involves incarnation. And where do we see incarnation in this text? So we've got one, and we've got A down here. Incarnation. Where do we see incarnation in this text? Quickly, we don't have tons of time, but verse 9, what's it say? A little lower than the angels. He was made a little lower than the angels. Good, I'm not going to try to write it up there because it's going to keep moving, but... 
What else do you see? Just a little lower? <laughs> a stable? Like, it wasn't just a little lower. It was, it was really, really lower than the angels. What else do you see in here that, that tells us about incarnation? He took part in flesh and blood, verse 14. Okay. Yes. It's a lot of the same things here. Um, <clears throat> good. So let me, let, me, let me just do this. With the incarnation, let me ask you what extent, because the thing that, that's significant about the incarnation is that it, he limited himself. And that's the word. Okay, we're going to go ahead and add that up here with the theology, theology section. For research, for those of you who want to go a little deeper. So when we're talking about incarnation, there's this theological term, this kenosis, if, if I'm saying it right. And it, it's talking about him limiting himself. So when he, when, when he made himself of no reputation, took on him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, he necessarily limited himself. But how much? That's the question. We want to know how much. And what does this text tell us? about that limitation. What, to what extent was he limited? And this text is clear about some of that. What does it say? Uh, <clears throat> okay. It's even to the point of being able to die because, yeah, that, that's pretty significant. Like God can't die. And that's why some people say, well, the whole thing is, it can't be. What else? Where, where, where are you going here? Okay. In all things, he was limited. Here's a couple phrases. Um, how about verse 13? This is a really interesting angle on the incarnation. What does verse 13 say? And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God have given me. So 13a says, this is Jesus Christ, this is God saying, I will put my trust in him. We're talking about incarnate, we're talking about him. I think, think the way it's said is, he set aside his glory without compromising his deity. I think we can say that without doing damage to the, to the person of Christ. He set aside His glory without compromising His deity. And the fact that, Jesus, that God Himself says, I will put my trust in Him, it teaches us something about how limited and, and what, what all was involved in this, in this identification with us. Another thing it says is that he learned obedience through suffering. He learned obedience. And that suffering was a vicarious suffering. This identification involved incarnation and it involved a vicarious. Who can tell me what vicarious means while I work on writing it up here? Okay. Certainly would involve voluntary. Okay, say that again. It's like living something through somebody else. Living right. something, help me out, elaborate on that. Like if somebody's doing something that you think looks fun, you're like living vicariously. Living vicariously? You're on the right track, although I'm still having a hard time. You're, you're right. It's just I'm trying to get this, get a hold of this. In the place of, or, or now we're getting into that, what, I don't know if you can still see it here, that substitute. That vicarious suffering is when Jesus suffered not for his own sake, but for, in the place of, or for another. So, so that, so what you were saying about um, in the place of, or, yeah, I don't know quite how to connect that with this, but. Maybe it's one of those 
spirit ideas that I can't articulate through language. A good example of a definition for vicarious suffering can be found in 1 Peter 3, 18. 1 Peter 3, 18. And it's here in this part of our, his identification with us that he tasted death for everyone. So somebody has 3.18. For Christ also hath once Perfect. suffered for sins, not for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. That is, that is vicarious suffering by definition. So let's look at another point. It's Jesus as our... So the second thing we said is our salvation, our redemption involves representation. Representation. So where do we see in this text that Jesus represented us? Just for the unjust. That was, okay, I'm back in Hebrews okay. too, sorry. But yeah, um, that would work. I'm, I'm looking for words or, or phrases that, that help us see, get a hold of the fact that Jesus represented us. Verse 15 says, the labor then here through the fear of death when there are Okay, good. Verse 17, to make so, reconciliation for the king of people. Okay. That is, um, that would go down here, I think. What you just said, and I can't repeat it back very well, but what Vaughn said, say that again quick. So, so he delivered them. He didn't, it wasn't for himself. Representations. I'm just going to, we're having fun here, but I'm out of time, so I'm just going to go through the rest of this. Um, it, I just, I, I prefer the style that we've been using the last 20 minutes, but we're just going to, we're going to make, gather up what we've got and make a run for it. So one of the things that, that teach us about representation is the fact that it says, it, it's talking about it was fitting for him, in verse 10, for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So we're talking about the captain. We're talking about a new leader. Adam let us down. We need a new leader. We need a new representative. And here we have Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation. And he's leading us. He's taking us somewhere. He's the captain of our salvation. And in this representation, save time here, <clears throat> we have, um, I'm just going to skip that. But in, in this representation, we have um, what I would call surrogate victory. Who can explain to me quickly what surrogate means? Surrogate victory. It's a little bit like vicarious suffering. Carrying something that belongs to another. Okay. So that, yeah, surrogate. It, it's a really similar word to vicarious. And, and you said it well. Doing something for another or carrying. Like there's surrogate parents. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of context there's surrogate. But, but what, I'm, what I'm seeing is in that thing that Vaughn pointed out is this. And this is so powerful. Inasmuch then, in verse 14, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He won a victory for us. And we are the beneficiaries. He represented us in that fight that we could not win. And he is bringing many sons to glory through his victory. He is bringing us to glory. Hallelujah. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 
It says, thanks be unto God who continually causes us to triumph in Christ. And there's some more beautiful phrases that I can't quote right now. But the other feature that we see here in Hebrews 2 is satisfaction. Satisfaction. This redemption involves identification. It involves representation. It involves a word that theologians have satisfaction. Requisitioned for their own purposes. There's a lot in terms of theology in this thing of satisfaction. And I'm going to just, yeah, we should add it up here. That should be up here because if you're going to do some more research, which I hope you do, check that out. Satisfaction. What is meant by that? And it's talking about the fact that a price has been paid. That, and we, we see that language in Isaiah 53. He shall see the travail of his soul. And what? He shall be satisfied. Who is he? And who is his? God shall see the travail of Jesus' soul and shall be satisfied. So when Jesus came as our representative and as our substitute, He satisfied the demands of God in, in a word that we call propitiation. And, and, and then we've also got imputed righteousness. Um, I'm just going to kind of skip that. It's important, but um, I wanted to have time for two more things here. Um, yay, three. What does salvation mean to the author of Hebrews? And you're going to have to dig a little bit. Um, sorry. I would have you dig for them, but I'm just going to give them to you. And these are important because remember that I said if we don't understand what all's involved in, our, in, in salvation, um, how did I say that? Without a proper understanding of, of Christ and man's condition, we end up with this, I really like the word truncated, but I'm not sure if everybody knows what it means. I'd love to draw a truncated sphere, but I'm not sure I can. Does somebody tell me quickly what truncated means? I can draw a two-dimensional truncated sphere, but it's a, it's a truncated circle, not a sphere. It's where part of it got chopped off. That's what my lay definition of truncated. So let's look quickly as we wrap up here. What does salvation mean to the author of Hebrews? We are saved from what? What are we saved from? In verse 14, we are saved from, let's see where I'm going to put this. Saved from, verse 14, we are saved from the devil's power. And unfortunately, we don't have time to, to develop all that. We're saved from the devil's power. We're saved from bondage and fear. In verse 15, we are saved from the guilt and the power of sin in 17 and 18. So if you get a chance, read the 3D Gospel. Signed reading for the first three-week Bible school. 3D Gospel, but, but it's, yeah, I'm sorry. i got to redeem the time here. Say, what are we saved unto? What are we saved unto? We're saved from a few things and we're saved unto something. We're saved unto good works. Is that found here? That's in Ephesians where? 2. Okay, verse what? Good. So, so we're saved from, we're saved unto. Um, and in this text, we're saved to, unto relationship. Um, in verse 10 and 11. We're saved unto a relationship of sons. We're saved, uh, and, that, and that involves belonging. We're saved unto 
a position of belonging. That says belonging. And we're also saved to glory, which involves restored dignity. And we are saved to holiness, which involves wholeness. Which is where I, I can connect with Sean. We are, um, in verse 10, it talks about this relationship as sons. Many sons into glory. But it also talks about glory. We're, like we're saved to glory. Like that dignity that we had in Adam is now restored in Jesus Christ. He is our captain of our salvation, leading us, sons and daughters, back to glory, back to the restored dignity that is, that is ours by, by virtue of having been created and by, by inheritance and by, by redemption, that glory Jesus is giving to us. And he's, he's, he's saving us to a condition of wholeness in verse 11, both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. We are being sanctified. We're being made whole. We're being made complete. All those things that are broken and ugly in our lives, Jesus is in the business of putting those things back together. So I want you quickly to write down two things about Jesus as our Savior that are especially significant to you. And then I want, to, I want you to write down one thing that you plan to explore in greater depth in the next two weeks. God bless you.